John chapter 2. This is the word of God. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. <clears throat> Amen. We thank God for his word to us this morning. Father, as we come to your word, show us Jesus. Show us Jesus in all his power and might and glory. And help us to believe Help us to put all our doubts, our concerns, our weaknesses, our distractions. Help us to put our faith in you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. One of the greatest privileges, of course, of being a minister is participating in the joy of a wedding. Now, I don't keep a running total, but I'm sure I must have participated in about 250 or so weddings uh, over the years. Some you remember more than others. I have many stories to tell, and probably one day I will write my book. Um, Will you buy it? Some stories of late brides and nervous grooms and lost rings and rings on the wrong fingers and rings on the wrong fingers on the wrong hand. Broken zips, that's a story in itself. Forgotten marriage licenses, chaotic rehearsals. Basically, a lot has happened in those 250 weddings or so. One groom tickled my hand as I pronounced him and his bride, man and wife. (laughs) There are so many things to tell, but we haven't time. Um, Receptions have always been wonderful. You know, you've got uh, small and large, old castles, modern hotels, a wigwam and a field, would you believe it? My favorite wedding, of course, can you guess? 
29th of July, 1993. Did I get the date right, Pauline? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nearly 30 years she stuck me. Isn't that wonderful? She deserves a prize. Followed closely by, of course, in our family, uh, Aaron and Ian, 5th of September, 2018. We have another wedding lined up in the family, God willing, and the 24th of May when Harry and Lucy get married. Weddings are so special, aren't they? In every age, in every culture, weddings are extremely important. And it's the same in first century Israel. In fact, the Hebrews, they, they really loved celebration. They loved drama. They loved excitement. Weddings were the grand event in life. After the ceremony, the couple were accompanied to their new home, and there was open house for, for almost a week. And the guests stayed for seven days, and they had to be fed, and they had to be watered. Today, of course, you know what it's like. It's a one-hour ceremony in a, a church normally, and then maybe four, five, six hours of celebration at a reception. Back then, seven days. You dads be thankful you dads be thankful. Couples were treated like kings and queens because the point was that it was never to be forgotten. It was supposed to be never to be forgotten and it was never intended to be repeated. Never intended to be repeated. Now, that's some useful background um, information for John chapter 2 as we join Jesus and the others at this wedding in Cana. But notice what's not mentioned. The bride's not mentioned at all. What did she wear? We do not know. Who was she? The groom, sorry, just gets a passing mention. There's no mention of the bridesmaids or the flowers or the speeches or the meal. All that's ignored. Now, you're probably saying typical of a man reporting uh, and missing out on all the important things. But no, what is the important thing about this particular event, this wedding at Cana? Well, we're, we're told that this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. That's the key important detail. Everything else is just simply background uh, information. And of course, we remind ourselves of these last, or towards the end of the book, where John's very clear, he says, Jesus did other miraculous signs, not just the seven that we're going to study, other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may have, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose. These signs to prove who he is, so we might believe. It's interesting, by the way, that there's absolutely no evidence that the servants who were at the wedding, who also witnessed this, believed. No evidence at all. Like today, you know, there's some today in this congregation, and you believe. And there's some of you who you, you don't believe. You don't believe. And maybe you'll never believe. God called you to believe. That's the point of this particular miraculous sign and all the others. See, signs 
always point to someone or something. The someone, of course, is Jesus. The something is the glory of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. This is the first miraculous sign that's full of spiritual meaning. Brian Chappell describes it like, almost like a business card. You know when somebody gives you a business card, it gives you a little clue about who the person is and what he does or what she does, and it points to something much more significant. Well, this particular miraculous sign is pointing to something greater that we're going to see later on in the gospel. But Jesus very powerfully takes an important biblical image, the biblical image of marriage, and he uses it to basically introduce who he is. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that right at the very beginning of Genesis, there's a marriage between Adam and Eve, right at the beginning of the Bible. And then right at the end of the Bible, we've got this marriage feast of the Lamb, in Revelation 19, we began our service with those words. And the saved are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So, so Jesus takes this image that the Bible opens up with and ends with, and he uses it here to introduce who he is, to display his glory, to introduce his ministry, what he's really all about. Now, the point of the sign the point of the miracle is not about the Christian's attitude to the consumption of wine. Many people try to go down that route, but that makes no sense. It's like the sign or the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is not about the contents of the Christian's packed lunch, now is it? So let's not go down the route where we're not supposed to go. How does Jesus display his glory? Well, he's saying a number of things. He's saying, you who are thirsty, thirsty for reality, thirsty for truth, thirsty for meaning, thirsty for salvation, I alone can satisfy that thirst. And you who are dirty, dirty because of sin, come, I will cleanse you. He's saying, if you're sad, if life's tough, if you wonder what's it all about, come to me and I will give you joy. All of this, you see, kind of the, the meaning behind the idea of wine and marriage. See, the best that the world can offer you, the best that religion can offer you is just ordinary water. Jesus says, I offer you better. I offer you the best. Tasty wine. The best wine. See, it's deeply symbolic. Now, a marriage reception without wine is like life without Christ in this culture, first century Israel. Society, as we know all around us, is full of um, anger, boredom, frustration, because people are simply drinking water, the water of the world, the water of religion. They've, they've not got yet to drinking Christ. And rather than satisfying their thirst on Jesus and his salvation, as represented in the image of wine, then they, they go for anything else and everything else. And, and the commentator says, even the church can be like um, water dispensers, just presenting another variety of water, meaningless stuff that just keeps us 
interested and under some kind of control. And some churches, many churches, are simply looking for a new and trendy variety of water. Like, you know, we just don't give you still water. We give you sparkling water or spring water with added vitamins or mountain natural volcanic water. See, I've done my research for this. Or flavored water, you know, with a, just a hint of lemon or lime. That's nice, isn't it? Or smart water. Now, what in there's smart water? Does that make me smarter if I drink it? Is it possible for me to be smarter than I really am? Water. I mean, that's, that's what the world offers you, water. A lot of religion just offers you water. Jesus says, I offer wine, not water. I offer myself, not religion. You see the symbolic meaning of it all? And some of us, you know, we are sad and we're broken and we're kind of lost and we're frustrated because we keep looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place. We keep looking just for different flavors of water in the world or in religion when we could have Jesus. Jesus says, drink me, have me. I'll wash you clean. I'll fill you with joy. I'll give you things that nobody else can give you. Nothing else can give you. That's how he glorifies his name. And that's how we share in his glory. So the context there is verses one and two, a family or friend's wedding. Mary's in the middle of things, so, so we reckon that must have been somebody very close to Mary and her family. She's there in the midst of trying to fix the problems. But that's where the context is. So let's look at the first of all. Um, sorry, this thing stopped working. Can you move on to just the next slide? Yeah, the problem. We've got the problem. Verses three through to five. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So the wedding party was heading for crisis, a disastrous flop, a real insult to the groom and his family, and Mary is troubled, and she asks Jesus to intervene, to help. Don't just sit there, Jesus, do something. Mums kind of often say things like that, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that, but they do. They fix things. They're the fixers in situations like this. What was she expecting? Was she expecting Jesus to perform a miracle? Or was she expecting Jesus, you know, to nip down to the local shop to get something? We don't know. But Jesus is not impressed that much, is he? Look at what he says. Dear woman, why do you involve me? See, Jesus saying, this issue, it's not my concern. I mean, this problem is not my priority. So immediately we ask the question, well, what is his concern? And what is his priority? Well, look at the rest of verse four. My time has not yet come. What does my time mean? My time, or perhaps if you're using the ESV, I think it's my R. My time or my R always refers to his death and resurrection. So right at the very beginning of his ministry, 
Mary's talking about wine at a wedding reception. Jesus is already focused on the cross. Do you see it? My, my time has not yet come. The time appointed by the Father where the love of Jesus for ruined sinners like you and me will be shown. The time of sacrifice, the, the time for salvation is about to happen. And Jesus is preoccupied with this. Jesus is dedicated to this. He's not being rude there in verse 4. Dear woman, why do you involve me? It's not that he's less concerned with his mother's business, but he's more concerned with his father's business. I'm about my father's business, he would say. See, Jesus knew. He knew the end from the beginning. He knew that the signs of, of uh, love and joy and celebration at that marriage feast would soon be replaced by mockery and ridicule and insult. Jesus knew. And he's focused, he's determined, he's committed. The cross, the resurrection, my time, it's coming, but it's not yet here. I wonder, are we equally focused on the cross and resurrection of Jesus? I wonder, are we? Because here's a problem. Within evangelicalism particularly, but also in liberalism, the old, old story of Jesus dying and rising again becomes a story that wearies us and bores us. We find that we're no longer drawn to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus. We no longer think about the nail-pierced hands and feet and the side that was pierced with a spear. And rarely do we find ourselves going back to the foot of the cross and weeping over our sin and singing the praise of our Savior. So right here at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus tells me, you know, my focus, my commitment is to my death and resurrection. And one commentator put it like this, follow the gracious gaze of Jesus and may his preoccupation be yours. Follow the gracious gaze of Jesus, may his preoccupation be yours. Verse five, Mary doesn't huff. There's no resentment of his words. She understands she heard the words of the angel before she even conceived. She understood and she humbles herself and respects her Savior and respects his focus. And she humbles herself and says, do whatever he tells you. See, that's letting God be God, isn't it? That's been committed to his plan and to his agenda. Now, listen to Mary as she speaks of and about her Savior as well as her Son. Do whatever he tells you. No better advice, eh? Do whatever he tells you. 
So that's the problem. What about the, um, the purification? Because I think this is where the major part um, of this section is really all about, verses 6 to 10. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and, and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. You'll notice the jars there in verse 6 are not for drinking water, but for ceremonial washing. And for, for us to understand this, we've got to think the way Jews thought, um, all the, the rituals that the Jewish people practiced. And part of this was the purification of hands and uh, cooking utensils, would you believe it, before, during, and after a meal. So, for all this purification, you needed special ceremonial water stored in special ceremonial jars for this special purification ritual. So, Jesus picked these particular jars with this particular kind of water to show all that he was the one and true purifier. His death alone would purify his people from their sins. And so, he Realize, yes, my time has not yet come, but I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to tell you why I'm here. It's almost like an acted out parable. Because the old purification rituals, I mean, did they purify anyone? Did they purify anyone? No, they didn't. No power to change, no joy, no freedom, no salvation. But this whole event was declaring his glory and was a kind of signpost to the permanent cleansing that Jesus would bring in salvation for his people so that when they go to heaven, they will be at home with him. Jesus, in a sense, is saying this, and I put those words up there. I will take all the purification rituals of Israel. I'll take them all and put them together, and I'll replace them with a once and for all way of purification, my blood. This was his mission as the Lamb of God. His death and resurrection, his hour, his blood, full and final and complete purification for sins. You can see why, you can see why the death and the resurrection of Jesus, like the hinge of history, everything swings on it. Ritual and religion are dead, empty, redundant practices. This new age of his time, of deep cleansing, is now here. It's the hinge, the split of history. And that's why in Revelation 7, um, verse 14, John describes his people, they have washed their robes and made them white, in the blood of the Lamb. And I suppose we've got to ask the question, do we want to be clean? 
do we want to be purified? Well, don't go to ritual and don't go to religion. Go to Jesus. The jars were filled with water and miraculously, as verse 70 tells us, they, they changed to wine. You see, the groom failed. He let the wine run out. Of course, this is the way of man. This is the way of religion. This is the way of the grooms of the world. All husbands fail. Don't you ladies know that? But quietly, with no fuss, Jesus plays the role of the sufficient and perfect groom. And he never fails us. Ephesians 5 tells us, you know, that we, the church, we're the bride and he is the groom. And that's why in Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. So that's the church coming down as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And that's why we read from Revelation verse 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. See, the groom in John 2 failed, but Jesus, our real groom, saved the day and he saves us by his grace, you see. He purifies us from our sin. And in many ways, what Jesus is doing here, he's taking advantage of the situation. He's, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 25. And if you have in your growth groups, in a couple of weeks' time, you'll have a chance to, to look at that particular passage. And we've started our service with it. He's a fulfillment of the prophecy, but also a promise of the future. That's what Jesus does. He takes the prophecy of the past and he points to the promise of the future. Do you remember last week, um, Jesus said to Nathaniel, you will see greater things than this? Do you remember that? Well, this is the kind of thing he means. Jesus is really saying to Nathaniel and to all of us and the people at that wedding feast that day, I will die for you. I will purify you. And I'm going to invite you to the eternal marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven. And just as I change water into wine, I'll purify you, you sinner. And I will fill you with joy because you're sad. And I will pour out my blood for you. And his provision that day was almost amazing. 180 gallons of wine, verse 9 and 10 tells us about. That's the kind of figures we're working on. For a modest number of people. But his provision for us for our forgiveness and for our futures, lavish and generous and extraordinary. Remember, this is a sign. The sign always points to something greater. And the sign there that day points to a greater husband. A greater banquet. 
a greater future, a greater cleansing, a greater joy. So what we have here is the problem, an embarrassing lack of wine. And then this acted out parable of purification where religion, the world, fails to deal with our sin and our misery and our addictions and our problems and our ache in our heart. And only Jesus can change. Only Jesus can bring joy. Only Jesus can bring purification. So the problem, the purification, what about then lastly, just one verse. Verse 11, the purpose of it all. We've been seeing different pictures of Jesus. The Word, the Son, the Creator, Lord, King. Now we're getting us all a picture. There's a bridegroom. Verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. You see, they saw his glory. Do you? Do we today really see his glory? See who he really is? They really believed? Do we really believe? See, they got from water to wine. They got from, more importantly, from religion to Jesus. So Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Folks, we've got to get beyond religion and see who he is and see what he wants us to do, to taste him, to have him, to enjoy him. It's all about believing, isn't it? It's all about receiving. It's all about living, as the prologue told us. But there are two things that stop us, and with this we sort of conclude. There are two things that stop us enjoying this kind of experience of Jesus. And I'm sure there's some of us, at least this morning, and, and this, is, this is where the rubber hits the road for you, The two problems mean that we accept the water of the world or the water of religion, not the wine that Christ speaks of here and what it represents. We, we accept religion and not salvation. What are these two things? Well, sin. Oh, no surprise. You know what sin does? It dulls our whole being. It's like an anesthetic. It stops us thinking. It stops us hearing. It stops us seeing. And it stops us believing. It destroys our souls. It blinds the eyes and blocks the ears and hardens the hearts. And you know what? We need a miracle to get beyond sin. We need the Savior. We often say we preach Christ, and it's God who opens blind eyes. And do you know what? After many years of ministry, <laughs> I believe in that more so because I can't open blind eyes and neither can you. What we can do is preach Christ and pray that the Holy Spirit will fall upon people and eyes will be opened and ears unblocked and souls softened and saved. Our prayer is that our eyes will be opened and we will believe.
the second problem, the first is more for unbelievers. The second is more for believers, for Christians. Satisfaction in all the wrong things. How sad it is to see people who once were on fire for God, committed, 100% sold out, and just living in a broken world with all the distractions, slowly but surely, drifting away. And it becomes kind of an acceptance of the mediocre, okayness, okay, I, I, I just do what's okay, I'll just do what suits me. You know, a, a, a little bit of Jesus, but not too much. Just enough, not too much. Minimum religious activity. Attend a little, give a little, serve a little. Mediocrity. It dulls our taste buds where we settle for less. We settle for water. We settle for religion. And we need a fresh experience of grace. A fresh experience of Jesus. Time's gone. The sign, a miracle. To reveal his glory, I am God, says Jesus. I am your purifier, your savior, and your joy. And the belief. They put their faith in him. Have you? Are you? Will you? That's the only answer we're going to see again and again and again. Jesus is the only answer. May we experience him and his grace in all its abundance. Lord, thank you for this familiar story, but with some perhaps surprising elements, and we ask that, um, that we will see the sign and see the glory and see what it means and put our faith in you and keep our faith in you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.